As you know, this season we're talking about all the reasons that might lead and cause overeating. But today we're going to take a slightly different approach to this commonly spread issue. We're going to look at this problem from a scientific point of view. And in order to help us understand all the biological reasons that might lead to overeating, we will be joined by a scientist, but not just by a scientist, but by the scientist, Giles Yeo who got his PhD in molecular genetics from the University of Cambridge in 1998, after which he joined the lab of Professor O'Reilly, working on the genetics of severe human obesity. And after this, he dedicated his career to trying to understand how our brains and hormones affect our eating behavior and our eating patterns. And his current research focuses on the influence of genetics on feeding behavior and body weight. Giles shares his knowledge in two books that he wrote so far. One is called Gen of Eating, which was published in 2018, and the second one, Why Calories Don't Count, which came out in 2021. And I fell in love with Giles back in 2018 when I read his first book. And the reason I loved his work so much has many reasons. First of all, the depth of knowledge and the depth of information. Secondly, it feels incredible to get the information from the person who actually conducted the research that he references and who participated and witnessed firsthand all of the results that he describes. But also Giles has an incredible talent of breaking down scientific facts that might sometimes be very hard to understand into very simple language, which is very easy to comprehend. And he provides very practical advice, which we can all take in order to improve our health and well-being. Hi, I'm Marina. I'm a health coach and this is The Why Matters, where I share with you my findings about well-being concerns which many of us face, such as overeating, stress, insomnia, gut problems, emotional burnout, lack of energy, you name it. Well, most of us can name it and are trying to fight it. In other words, we know what we're facing and are looking for how to fix it. But we are completely neglecting the why. Why we got here in the first place is the most crucial question we have to ask ourselves to find an effective way out which we all want and rightfully deserve. Your why truly matters, and that is why we're here. So you are originally from San Francisco, where you studied genetics, right? Yes, correct. And uh, then you came to Cambridge to do a PhD, and you were studying genetics of a Japanese Bufferfish. Mm. So how did you come from that to writing Why Calories Don't Count, which I currently have on my table? And why while holding a degree in genetics was it such a broad field and could have provided you with so many other opportunities to focus on? Why did you decide to focus on food and nutrition yourself? That, that <laughs> All right. So I guess why did I've always been interested in genetics? It's one of the, it's one of these things. I went into uh, university. Um, I did a practical looking at fruit flies. I know I study <laughs> all creatures, great and small, but that really nailed me and got me interested in genetics. I moved to Cambridge, as you said, to do my PhD in pufferfish genetics. Actually, it was molecular evolution of pufferfish genetics. I mean, the real reason this was pre human genome project. So this was actually quite, quite a while ago. 
it is easier to map genes in a pufferfish because pufferfish have smaller genome. They have less DNA, but the same number of genes as a human being, okay, because they're a vertebrate. So it was, it was far easier to map genes in the pufferfish and then use that to try and understand what happens in humans. So that was what I did for my PhD. But it's a very niche topic. It is, for sure. <laughs> it is a very niche topic. And I sort of realized um, early on that while it was interesting and got me my PhD, that it was not going to pay my mortgage. It just, it's, it, you know, like pufferfish geneticists, not, <laughs> it's not, it's not a high, it's not an in-demand field. So what happened was, um, and this was then entirely by chance, I needed a job when I finished my PhD. And in effect, I walked around the department and was um, no knocking on, on doors. And the second door I knocked on happened to be a guy called Stephen O'Reilly, Professor Stephen O'Reilly. And at the time, he and his team had just identified the first two genes causing severe obesity in human beings, one of which was a leptin. Um, but we'll come, we'll come to that in a second. But in effect, this was 19, beginning of 1998. He had discovered these, G, uh, a leptin in particular in 1997. And they had begun to, uh, collect kids with severe obesity and needed a geneticist. And so I had just got my PhD. I was a geneticist and like literally I, and I came from a famous lab. Um, and so, he called my references. Um, I did not have two heads. I was fine. Um, and he hired me almost on the spot. And so I started in the genetics of severe obesity by chance. It just happened to be a lab I knocked the door on. So the dots connected, more or less. The dots connected. It's just, this is one of these situations in life where like literally why I entered the field was entirely by luck. Okay. Entirely. Then, however, we then started looking at genetics of severe obesity, and then we then started looking at genetics of body weight in general, which we now understand that if we study the genetics of body weight, we are studying the genetics of how our brain controls food intake, which gets me into food intake. And that is where we are now. It's what, and that was 25 years ago. I, I, I went in, um, started severe, severe obesity, and then sort of as your career moves on and you start to and you start to do certain things and and that's where we we, we are why i am interested in how the brain controls food intake well i'm very happy that the luck turned out this way and that 25 years ago you accidentally got into this topic because now we can have this conversation so since you already mentioned obesity i feel like there is still this stigma in the society and as i work you know with people sometimes who are overweight or who are struggling or who are actually medically clinically obese there's still this stigma in the society that if you have obesity or if you're just overweight then you are lazy and you are lacking willpower and you should just eat less and exercise more but we both know that sometimes that's not the reason i mean and of course we do gain weight when we overeat that's, I think, the number one reason for that. But the reason we overeat is not always that simple and plain. Sometimes it's emotional and emotions are subconscious while willpower is our conscious and logical mind. But sometimes it can be also the biological and physiological reasons. And even if people want to stop eating, they literally can't stop eating. And it's like you describe in your books, it's the lack of signal between the fat and the brain. 
And that's a special hormone that communicates, right? And if you're lacking the signal, then your body thinks that you're not carrying any weight, any fat, and hence encourages you to eat more to kind of help you survive. So can we please dive a little bit deeper into this area? Okay, so that was a complex question. <laughs> I, th I think it depends on what we are actually um, talking about here. Because there are going to be situations in which there are very rare cases, very rare, hugely rare, of human beings with mutations in certain genes that cause really severe obesity. Okay, um, But what's interesting is that these same pathways, where if you can have severe disruption of these pathways causing severe obesity, very subtle changes in these pathways influence all our, all our body weights. So broadly speaking, our brain needs to know two pieces of information in order to influence our food intake. Okay, the first piece of information your brain needs to know is how much fat you have. Okay, and why? Because how much fat you have is how long you would last in the wild without any food. So if your sources of food stop today, how long would you live for? Because fat are your long-term energy signals, number one. Okay, and it's going to be hormonal. They're going to be hormones secreted from fat that circulate. The second piece of information your brain needs to know is what you're currently eating and what you've just eaten. So these are going to be short-term signals, and they're going to come from your gut, from your gastrointestinal uh, tract, okay? So what your brain does, and they're also hormones, they're going to come from gut hormones. So your brain senses long-term signals from fat, short-term signals from your gut, which means that how much fat do I have? How much have I just eaten? and then integrates these signals and then influences your next feeding decision. When you go to the supermarket, the restaurant, whatever it is you're, you're doing, it thinks, well, it's so, it doesn't tell you. It, it, it does this subconsciously. And, and, that, and then it, and it makes a decision. Now, for certain people, your brain is slightly less sensitive to these signals. So imagine, imagine um, if you are carrying 20 kilos of fat on you, just as an example, okay? But your brain only senses that you are carrying 18 kilos of fat. Imagine that. So your brain is thinking, 18, I thought I had 20 kilos of fat. It then drives you to eat a little bit more to get to 20 kilos. But you already have 20 kilos of fat on you, so you get more. Another example, imagine if you've just eaten 1,000 calories for lunch, but your brain only senses you've eaten 800 calories. You get where I'm going here. So because it's slightly less sensitive to the signals, it makes you eat more, even though you've um, already eaten 1,000 calories, which is why you could be there with your uh, partner, brother, girlfriend, whatever, okay, it's whoever you're eating with, and eat exactly the same meal, exactly the same meal. But you could feel still feel hungry at the end of that meal, or your dinner partner may suddenly be feeling more full with exactly the same meal. And that is, broadly speaking, what we're beginning to understand. These are two of the pathways that are that can be influenced. And in some people, because they're slightly less sensitive, drives them to actually um, to actually eat more than than someone else. And which of these pathways is leptin pathway? So the one that you've discovered. The leptin pathway is the fat sensing pathway. So it's the long-term one. It's the long-term one, correct. 
And you've also mentioned that um, sometimes in rare cases, this is the genetical mutation. That's right. So in some people, this can be the genetics. And can we influence these pathways in any way with our, let's say, lifestyle choices? Can we make them worse or break them and watch our lifestyle basically patterns lead to this? Okay. So if we look at the rare cases, very little lifestyle changes can actually fix that for the very rare cases. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there you need drugs. You, you, you need other approaches. For the vast majority of us, however, um, your genetics only plays one part of the role. So we now know what role genetics plays and there's a number to it. Okay. So using, um, uh, uh twin studies where you study identical twins and non-identical twins, um, you're then able to calculate what we call heritability, which means it's the percentage of a given trait that's going to be genetic versus environmental. And if you actually look at that, then the heritability of body weight, okay, is between 40 and 70%. So it's quite a big range, but 40 to 70% is going to be genetic, which means if you take the yin to the yang, which means that 30 to 60% is environmental. So that, that, there is the answer. Okay. So clearly your genes play a big role, but so does the environment. Okay. It's relatively speaking, probably it's slightly more genetic than environment, but it's pretty close to 50 50, depending on what you were talking about here. So in terms of lifestyle, I'm not only lifestyle. You can ask the question, well, are you rich or poor? Do you commute? Do you work shifts? Do you have kids? You know, you can ask a number of different questions about uh, someone's uh, a lifestyle that will influence your body weight. But for some people, that they're, they're always more likely to end up with obesity, end up being heavier than someone else because of their genes. So it's a, your genes interacting with the environment always. Okay, so it's 50% what we were born with, but there's also a 50% chance that we can basically work on and influence ourselves. Okay, that doesn't sound too dramatic. That sounds rather positive. Because I feel like whenever someone says it's genetics, it always kind of leaves you in this helpless position, and you feel like there is nothing you can do. But you saying that it's only more or less 50-50, it means that there's a lot that we can do. And um, also in one of your books, I've read about the one of the hormones, which if I'm not wrong, is basically a part of this leptin pathway, which is called MC4R. Also, I might be wrong, but I think that you've mentioned that basically based on this hormone, you can kind of predict if a person will overeat or not. So, so that is true for the relatively rare mutations within the gene. So I am, I am, I am drawing a distinction between a mutation in a gene, which means that you can sequence the gene and there is a genetic disruption to the gene versus subtle changes around the gene that, that you'll find in you, find in me, find in, in, in most people. But we know that 0.3% of the population. So we've shown this just a couple of years ago. 0.3% of the population will carry mutations in the MC4R causing them at 18 years old, if you have one mutated copy on average to be 18 kilos heavier, that's 40 pounds. Okay. So that's quite, quite, quite a lot, but it's an average. And there we found that depending on how severe the mutation is, because you can have mutations, which sort of knock out the function of the gene entirely, or genes that kind of drop the function of the receptor to half to 50%, just, just as an example. And depending on the severity of the mutation, people eat more, 
or people eat less. And so there's an example. What is interesting um, um, about this MC4R gene, which is part of the fat sensing pathway, is it doesn't only influence how much you eat, which is hopefully not surprising now that we've reached this stage of the discussion. It also influences what you like to eat. So, so I, a, a colleague of mine, um, Professor Sadaf Faruqi, who's a, who works in our institute, um, she's a clinician, and she set up the study. Okay, she wants to know what happens if you have mutations within the MC4 um, um, receptor. And so remember, 0.3% of the population in the UK, as an example, is 200,000 people. So we, we, it's not super common, but it's not that rare either. Okay, so this is the experiment she set up. She called this the chicken korma study. For those of you who know what chicken korma is, it's a chicken curry. And what she did was she was able to change the amount of fat in the, the fat content of the curry by whisking in differing amounts of oil, rapeseed oil. Okay, and so you, she did a Goldilocks collection of curry, um, small, medium, large in terms of the amount. Sounds like a lot of curry. It's a lot. It's a lot of curry. <laughs> it was a lot of curry actually. We participated in the study as well as controls, and so the study is: you walk in, or at least the experiment is that someone walks in, they taste the three curries, small, uh, small, medium, large in terms of the amount of fat, then pick the one you like and eat that. Now you can imagine if you take. People without mutations, you and me, you'd walk in and you'd get sort of some people who like the fattier flavor and some people who like the less fatty flavor and you sort of whatever. But everybody with an MC4R mutation went for the highest fat um, curry. Okay, so MC4R appears to play a role in driving increase in fat intake. But it's not just about the calories because... She then, Professor Faruqi, then set up another study, and we called, and she called this the Eaton Mess study. Now, for those of you who don't know what an Eaton Mess is, it's taking a pavlova, okay, dropping it on the floor and sort of putting it back in the in a cup. It's smashed up. That's the most precise description of Eaton Mess that I've heard in Thank my life. Thank you. Thank you. But but what is wonderful about Eaton Mess is you can control the amount of sugar. Because you can make the meringue slightly sweeter, you can whisk in sugar into the cream. Okay, so once again, she set up exactly the same study: small, medium, large in terms of the amount of sugar. And what she then found out was, while if you have a mutation in MC4R, you went for the high fat, the highest fat food possible, you went for the lowest sugar food. So, so there is an example of just having a mutation in a single gene, which influences not only how much you eat. But there is, you know how some people, I have a sweet tooth. It's me. <laughs> yes, right? Uh, I prefer fatty food. That's me. Okay. And so now we have some genetic um, evidence for this not just being learnt. This is not learnt. There are going to be elements of food intake that are learnt, obviously. But this particular situation, this is not learnt. This is a uh, uh, where your genes really, really do play a role in what type of food you'd like to eat. This is really, really, really fascinating. It's not because, like you said, it doesn't not only control how much you eat, but also what you like to eat. And uh, that, that's amazing because, I mean, all of us have different taste preferences and we are definitely not one body, you know, just distributed among multiple people. It's what I always say that we are all different and we are all unique and our taste preferences are different. And now you've even proven it on the basically biological and scientific 
level. That's that's a, that's exciting. And um, I would say that obesity is probably one of the greatest problem of our times and of our centuries. And it's both an economic and it's a health crisis. But at the same time, the fitness industry is booming. We now have more, you know, weight loss programs. We now have more fitness boot camps, etc., etc., than ever before. The amount of available information out there on the internet, in the bookstores, it's absolutely crazy. But then, while why basically is this this correlation that why the fitness the fitness industry is booming and the obesity is also skyrocketing? Like, where did we get it wrong? <laughs> where did we make a turn to the dark side? So. I mean, I mean that's a complex question. Um, um, first, let's deal with the the fitness industry, and 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 one of the interesting things is we think, or at least it's 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 accepted in society, or at least we think it's accepted in society that fitness is useful for weight loss, and actually it isn't. And and so here, here here's the here's the interesting thing. Look, but before we start anything anywhere, physical activity, whatever you choose to do is unequivocally good for you. Okay, nothing replaces the benefits of fit of of exercise. Nothing. So keep doing it. Um it is definitely better good for your health. The problem is it's pretty bad for weight loss. Now, I'm not trying to invent physics. Clearly, if you exercise enough, if you look at an Olympic athlete, okay, if you look at Mo Farah, Tour de France cyclists, marathon runners, I mean, yes, they will lose like a Tour de France cyclist, three big race, they will lose weight over the race, even while trying to eat as much as possible. Okay, so clearly, you can control your weight by exercise. The problem is none of us, normal human beings, exercise enough in order to lose weight without tweaking food intake. So exercise is not good for for, for, for weight loss. So I think there is a disconnect between the number of fitness classes and fitness things out there and weight loss because it's not particularly good for weight loss. It is, however... Good for weight maintenance. So once you've lost weight, which which does require you to influence your food intake, but once you've lost the weight, exercise is very effective to help you keep the weight off. Different process, right? Losing the weight and keeping it off. Um, but in of itself, for weight loss, it's not particularly effective. So I think that's the first thing. The disconnect between fitness and weight loss. Why do we have skyrocketing obesity levels. I mean, undoubtedly, it's the change in our food environment, probably the built environment and to some degree what we do, you know, the kind of jobs we do, how we move around. We have dishwashers, washing machines, all that kind of stuff. But really, it's the change in the type of food we are now exposed to, the type, the amount, and the cost of food that we're actually exposed to. And this undoubtedly has driven obesity I think um, one of the most eye-opening studies for me that I've ever read um, in my life was the one conducted by Herman Bonser when he studied the tribes and the bankers from Wall Street and realized that basically their met- metabolic rates are more or less the same. That when we are too actively spending the calories in the gym or on the workouts, then our basal metabolic rates kind of go down a little bit to compensate for it. So, and that's when I realized that if you want to lose weight, then treadmill is not the solution because you can't really achieve your goals on a treadmill. But if we are already on this topic, you know, when we go on a diet, 
like we cut the calories, we exercise more. Yes, we will lose some weight. But then, according to all the statistics, weight does come back and usually with a little bit of interest rate. So you actually even... Interest rates. Love it. (laughs) So you actually gain more than you lost. And my basically question is, why does this happen? Uh, You see, here's the interesting question. I think, okay, what is a diet that works? A diet that works is a diet that gets you to have an energy deficit. So you so you end up eating slightly less, so you end up losing weight. That's a diet that, quote-unquote, works. The issue is, the moment you come off the diet, the moment you stop having that diet, the weight will come back on. Because your brain hates it when you lose weight. And, 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 and this is the problem. Your brain hates it when you lose weight. The moment you lose any weight... Your brain does, uh, it, it considers it a big red flag to say that you have less of a chance of surviving. And so what it does is it does two things. Is it, first of all, makes you feel hungry, okay? Hungrier. So you eat to try and get it back up. But more insidiously, okay, when you've actually lost weight, and it doesn't matter whether you've lost five pounds or you've lost 40 pounds. This is the same effect that happens. Your brain lowers your metabolism, so that for every, so, so that you become more efficient, which means that actually to maintain your weight loss, you need to eat less than what you were actually eating before, so that it actually brings you back up to where you were before. So the issue is not that diets don't work, but that we can't stick to a diet. And that is the, I know it's a very depressing thing to be talking about, but this is the biology. This, and this is the reason why that if you come off a diet or any other treatment for that matter for, for body weight, your body weight will go back to what it was before. So maintaining the weight loss is always far, far, far more difficult than than the weight loss itself. And maintaining the weight loss will require some kind of lifestyle change in order to keep it off, um, in order to keep it off alive. And it's easier said than done. I definitely agree with you. And I think another part of the problem is that People never actually ask themselves, why did I gain weight in the first place? And they go on a diet, but the diet is not a magic pill. It can't solve the root problems of why you gained weight in the first place. And I think that this should also be addressed whenever someone wants to go on a weight loss, to identify these root issues and to fix them. So then if even if they lose weight, then it becomes easier to maintain it because they have changed the behavior that originally drove them to a place where they actually needed to lose Wait, and um, another popular myth in the society is, I think it's your favorite word by now, after writing this book, is calories. Yes, calories. <laughs> I personally absolutely love and hate this word. And, you know, I'm the lucky one. I never, ever, ever counted calories in my life. And I think I'm a rare breed because there are very few of us. And it's just because it always seemed extremely boring to me. But I know so many friends who maybe before or even now track every calorie that they're eating. You know, they have all this app, fitness pal and everything else. But if the formula, if you eat less than like you spend, then you basically lose weight was correct. And if it was so straightforward that you just look at the packaging and see, ooh, chocolate, 500 calories, and you type it into your app, then probably losing weight would be very easy, right? So then basically the question is, why calories are actually not that simple that they seem to be? So before your listeners um, um, turn me off because they says this guy is talking <laughs> rubbish, um, I, I understand. I understand that 200 calories of chips 
is twice the portion of 100 calories of chips. Of course it is, okay? Because it, 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 it gives you an amount of food. But so is 200 grams of chips, twice the portion of 100 grams of chips. And no one is trying to compare 200 grams of chips to 200 grams of carrots. It's pretty much it, okay? So if you're trying to eat less chips, burgers, whatever it is, then yeah, if you have the number of calories, you're going to eat half the amount of that particular food. But comparing different foods using calories is very, very useless. Calories give you the amount of food. What they don't tell you anything about is what is in the food, the nutritional content in the food. Some some foods are going to be healthier for you. They have more fiber. They have more protein. Others have a lot more sugar, whatever, okay? Whatever your metric is, calories don't tell you anything about that. And that is my problem with the calorie. I think we need, we do need to improve our diets. Some of us do need to eat less. All this is true. But I think the calorie is just a blunt tool that doesn't give us any of this information. We should be knowing, we should be more interested with protein content, fiber content, free sugar content, you know, things which matter to our health. The calorie is, to my opinion, just one element of it. It just tells you about the amount of food you're eating. Plus, like you also mentioned in your books, it's also about the thermogenesis, right, of the food that we take. So if we just take broccoli, then actually 200 calories, like 200 grams of raw broccoli and 200 grams of cooked broccoli will have a different effect on your body. And just like you said with the protein, so protein actually requires some energy that it carries to be digested. So it's actually pretty impossible to even calculate how many calories exactly you're eating, right? Well, that's correct. That's correct. Um, because the, the interesting thing about calories is people say, well, all calories are equal, uh, right? A calorie is a calorie. Which is, which is the calorie counting. Well, that's true once it's in you as a little bit of energy, which you use. Then, then they are probably all equal. The problem is, and this is the important thing to remember, we eat food. We do not eat calories. Once we eat the food, our body then has to work and extract and the amount of protein, the amount of fiber, the amount of, you know, what, what have you. It needs to work through in order to get the calories out. And, and there are many, many things which this is called caloric availability. Calorie availability, which is the amount of calories you can extract from a food as opposed to the total number of calories in the food. And that differs depending on what you do to it, what you do to process it, cook it, ferment it, um, ultra process it, whatever you want to call, that changes the amount of calories that you can extract from a food. So calorie counting is just it. I, I don't think we should do it. And you, we know. That certainly here in the, um, in, in, in the UK as of, as of April last year, 2022, where now some of the larger or all of the larger food chains have to put the calorie counts um, on, on the menu. And I, I'm going to go back to it. And I say it's a blunt tool. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's that helpful a number. I think we should be putting other information on there instead, such as sugar, protein, fiber, fat everything. Yeah, yeah. And and even in fat, what type of fat? So so I think we are then in a danger because then another criticism that's thrown at me is then well that's complicated. The 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 good thing about the calorie is it's just one number. Okay? The bad thing about the calorie is it's just one number. So I think what we've got to do is to take the numbers that matter and for me I think it is 
protein percentage, fiber, and free sugars. Those are my three numbers that I would prefer. But rather than actually put it as a number, because what does it mean? What does it mean to have two grams or 10 grams of fiber in a food? I think for most of us, I don't have a concept. I don't have a concept of that. But if we traffic light it, okay, if we then we, we get people to who know about fiber and protein and, and sugar and traffic like that rather than calories, then you can look at a packet and say, oh, um, this has a, 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 the right amount of protein or a really high amount of fiber. This is going to be better for me than something else which has lower protein and lower fiber. I think that is a better solution to trying to improve our diets. No, for sure, 100%. Because like you said, calorie is just a blunt number. But actually, no, knowing if it's like, let's say, green, yellow or red light when it comes to protein or sugar or fiber gives you so much more information. Like, for instance, like, how long will this energy last me, right? Yes. Because like, let's say if it's like a chocolate, and personally, as you know, I'm a sweet tooth and I love my chocolate. But I know that unfortunately, chocolate will not give me energy for a very long amount of time. While like something else with the same amount of calories, but a different amount of sugar and a different amount of protein and a different amount of fiber will actually give me energy for a much longer sustained periods of time. And this is, of course, much more useful than any calories or anything else. And um, you've mentioned the processed foods. And I know from your book that there are four basically groups of foods, right? That there is unprocessed or minimally processed. There is a processed culinary ingredients, there is processed and then ultra processed. And I have a question about the ultra processed foods. Because, you know, I teach people how to eat mindfully, how to eat slowly, how to actually pay attention to the food that they are eating, how to not put another piece of food on the fork while the other one is still in the mouth and to actually enjoy the process. And what I found is that when you actually pay attention to the food that you are eating, then you're eating more slowly and then you actually can better control the amount of food that you are eating. And it is easier for you to understand and catch that satiety level that okay now it seems like i've had enough but all of that work and all of that perfect pyramid kind of falls down when it comes to ultra processed food you know like crisps or chocolate or ice cream for some reason all of these techniques they don't really work when it comes to crisps it's like once you had one it's almost impossible to not finish the entire pack and I know it myself, and I suppose, you know, to be a perfect example when it comes to this, but I'm not going to lie that it's a hard challenge even for me. So I was wondering if you have an explanation why. So, I mean, ultra-processed foods are an interesting modern phenomenon. So let's just define what an ultra-processed food is. I'm not talking about processed foods, okay? So you remember that almost everything we eat is processed to some degree, aside from if you walk down and pluck an apple off a tree. That's unprocessed. But cooking is a process, fermentation is a process, pickling is a process. These are all processes. Processed foods per se are not bad for you. They've actually kept us alive. The thing about ultra-processed foods is that they're industrial methods that we cannot replicate in our domestic kitchen or, or in most restaurants, actually, normal restaurants. They won't be using ultra-processed foods because they don't have the equipment. You know, mechanical recovery of meat, extrusion, you know, a lot of uh, added chemicals, which you don't normally would, you you just wouldn't go to the supermarket and buy them in your house. So it's a very different process. Now, I'm not a food Nazi. 
I've, I've never said that they're bad foods and they're good foods. They're just some foods you can eat lots of and other foods you probably should eat less of. And ultra-processed foods fits into this category. So why? The problem is ultra-processed foods are, because of their ultra-processing, are inherently lower in fiber and protein, depending on what kind of food it is. Inherently, okay, because of all the processing. So they're very calorically available, which means that if you have 200 calories of an ultra-processed food, you're going to get a lot more calories out of it than if you actually eat a non-ultra-processed food. The other thing lacking in ultra-processed foods is flavor because of, because of all the processing. So where does flavor come from? The holy trinity of sugar, salt, and fat. Okay. And so what happens is you have to replace, you have to replace the flavor, which is sugar, salt, and fat. So Unfortunately, ultra-processed foods tend to be low in salt, uh, um, in protein and fiber, and high in sugar, salt, and fat. So they're very, very palatable. And that's the problem with ultra-processed foods. They're very calorically available and are so constructed to be super palatable, which is the, the this is the crisp scenario, right? Where you, where you actually, where you actually continue eating the crisp because it's constructed. It's so delicious because it's constructed to be delicious. That is the problem with ultra-processed foods. It almost is designed to uh, evade our evolutionary response to food, if you know what I'm saying. So that helps. So it is really not just me or you. It is that they're just designed to be this way. And that is one of the reasons why we should actually limit their consumption. Yes. And willpower won't really help you there because it's a, like you said, holy trinity. And it's very hard to stand against the holy trinity. It is. In this particular instance, unfortunately. <laughs> so we talked about that you know, maintaining weight loss is actually very hard after you've been on a diet. And we've talked that calories do not really matter when it comes to, you know, what we eat. And we've talked about that fitness is not a particularly good tool for weight loss. So in this case, what does it leave us with? So what would you say are the best tools and methods for basically a sustained Weight loss. Is there a holy trinity of a different kind here by any chance? I, I think there probably there probably is. And I think we've got to consider it in two different steps. We have to get the weight loss first, which is actually a shorter process. And then you then have to change strategies for the weight maintenance. And and we have to we have to accept this. It's gotta be two different steps. It's not a one size. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to find something that suits you, whoever you are, whatever you do. Um, you know, the questions uh, um, to, to ask, you know, can you afford it, right? That's the first thing. If you can't afford it, then you can't stick to it. Um, do you have children? Do you work shifts? Do you commute to work? I mean, there's many, many things which you ask, does it fit you biologically? Because if it doesn't suit you, you won't be able to stick to it. You won't be able to actually do do, do what you do. And in terms of weight maintenance, the, exactly the same is true. So you have to find something that suits you, which is why there is no one size fits all um, um, from it. There are, however, I think some good rules, general rules to follow that all of us can follow in spite of whatever approach we're going to take. And I think that is to improve our diets ever so slightly. And, and, and you know, why would we not want to improve our diets? I think we need to focus on eating the right amount of protein. Um, and when I mean protein, I don't only mean steaks. I mean, you know, anything from tofu, from beans, any source of protein, plants or animal base will, will, will work, uh, from this. And there is a sweet spot, actually. Um, so ex if you're not 
an Olympic athlete or you're not training for a marathon or lifting or anything like that, normal life, then most of us need to stick at around 16% of protein for our energy diet. And I think and I think that is a good number to actually shoot for for average. The second thing is we need to eat a lot more fiber. At the moment, we're probably only eating 15, on average, 15 grams of fiber a day. And we, I think, need to shoot for twice that. In fact, the more the merrier, 30 grams of fiber, and then sugar. And I think we need to keep... The, the, the percentage of free sugars, so these are sugars that are added rather than tied up in a fruit uh, with fiber, to 5% or less. And so those three numbers, 16% of protein, more than 30 grams of fiber, and less than 5% of free sugars. And incorporate that into whatever dietary approach you, you, you're in, keto, whatever, okay? I think that is a, for lack of a better term, a healthy, at least a sustainably healthy way to, to eat. Thank you so much for saying it out loud that you should find something that works for you. And it's not only on the biological level, it's like you said, what you can afford or even what you like, which now we know is also a little bit genetical. Because I think with the amount of information available out there, and it's so controversial that like, you know, one study says eat more of this, the other study says eat more of that. And I think the reason it is so controversial is like you said, that some things might work for some people and other things will work for other people. And you basically just got to put yourself out there and be your own researcher in a way and just try and find the approaches that basically work for you, for your body, for your needs, for your preferences. And I will highlight the preferences because I think you should enjoy food. Like food is good and food is delicious. And this is definitely not something that we should basically fight with. We shouldn't fear food. I think we need to understand our food more. Uh, um, some of us need to eat less food. Some of us need to eat better food, but we shouldn't fear our food. We should love our food. Absolutely. And this is another stigma, which is very, very high in the society, especially about, you know, something that is labeled currently as bad, which causes shame, uh, which then drives even further overreaching. And this is where what I work with. So we for sure should not fe fear food. We should just really understand it more. And maybe one of the reasons why we fear food is that because we just don't understand it enough. Because we've been given a, a one number, which is a calorie our entire life. And of course, it might sound scary. So just learn to understand your food and then the solution will be out there. Um, I just want to go back to leptin for one moment because, um, you know, we have like insulin resistance rate when your body stops respond to insulin in the way that it should be responding, which is also a huge problem these days, uh, which is considered a pre-diabetic state. And I was wondering, is there such a thing as leptin resistance, where your body kind of stops responding to leptin? Because as far as I know that overweight people, they actually do have high levels of leptin, right? That's right. So there is a phenomenon called, we can debate whether, it's a, whether the word is the term is useful, of leptin resistance. And so the phenomenon is exactly this. Because leptin is a fat hormone and it's secreted in proportion to the amount of fat you have. So the more leptin you have, the more fat you have. Um, then, sh then, then shouldn't leptin coming to the brain make you eat less? Because when you actually take a child without any leptin at all, no leptin, zero leptin because of genetic, because of genetic mutations and give the child leptin, he immediately eats less. So, Leptin resistance is a phenomenon that reflects the actual biological function of leptin. 
So leptin is there to inform your brain throughout the entire spectrum how much fat you have. It does this all the time. But it only begins to turn on an action when it disappears. Okay, when does leptin disappear? Leptin disappears when you don't have enough fat. When don't you have enough fat? When you're starving. When you're on a diet as well, probably. When you're on a diet, when you are um, anorectic, when you are an elite female athlete that runs, uh, um, that runs down the, your, your fat stores. That is when leptin functions to let your brain know you don't have enough fat. So that's why additional, that's why high amounts of leptin makes no difference to your food intake because it's, its role is not to turn on biological functions when you have enough or too much fat, but only to turn on biological functions when you don't have enough fat. So it's, so lep, this is the phenomenon of leptin resistance where it only has functions at the lower level, not at the higher level. So that's what leptin resistance is. And um, then the last question that I have for you, it's, um, as I've told you in the beginning, like I specialize a little bit more on the emotional side of eating and on the all the psychological things. And um, one thing which has always been, I would say, the hardest for me to figure out is how stress affects our eating patterns. Because, you know, some people eat more when they're stressed, some people eat less when they're stressed. And I came with the emotional side of things theory. And I've noticed that sometimes when you actually want to deal with the root cause of your stress, and that's usually, you know, um, more short-term period stress, then that's when you actually, your appetite goes down, at least of what I've seen on myself and on the clients. And when you don't want to deal with the reason of stress, or it's already became a chronic stress, then you actually tend to eat more and your appetite goes up. But that's just my little emotional side theory. And I was wondering if there is any maybe genetical explanation to why people eat more during stress or why some people eat less during stress or it's just completely out there in the surface and it just depends from one person to another. So that's an excellent question. We need to draw the distinction between short-term stress, as you say. So we, let, shall we call that tiger stress? Yeah, tiger stress. So all of us respond to tiger stress in exactly the same way. We turn and run from the tiger and none of us are feeling hungry because there's a tiger chasing us, okay? Fight or flight. And so all of us respond to it within that acute thing. What is really interesting is chronic stress, work, exams, whatever you're talking about, they're actually two types of responses, diametrically opposite. And we know these people, as you said, people that stop eating and people that, 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 comfort, that comfort eat. Mechanistically, we have no idea why. Why there, there are these two? There's got to be some kind of genetic reason um, um, that is there mechanistically. But from an anecdotal point of view, I guess this is, this is in my head, this is the explanation. Um, being stressed is unpleasant. Of, of course it is. So we don't like unpleasant things and we want to make it pleasant again. And for some people, that is food for me. Okay, I'm definitely a stress eater. If I'm stressed chronically, I tend to turn to food. I tend to turn to very carb-heavy foods. That's just me. Me too. Okay, for, for, <laughs> for, for, for that. Because that makes that tickles a part of the brain that makes me feel nice and it makes me feel less stressed. For other people, it's not food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Don't take drugs. Maybe it's bungee jumping. Maybe it's painting maybe it's something else that then tickles the nice that the, the nice element so i think the differences in response is more to do with what it takes to make us feel nice again what it takes to de-stress 
And so mechanistically, like I said, I have no idea why, but that's the biological uh, um, explanation. For me, feeding makes me make myself uh, less stressed, feel nice, um, whereas other people do other things, run, bungee jump, take drink alcohol. And I think that's the reason for the differences in response. So in going back to what you're saying, if you want to try and deal in very many ways, a diet deals with the symptoms okay, that are, of what's there, but to prevent it from happening again, you need to deal with the root cause. And so it's for some people, it's dealing with the source of stress, dealing with your relationship with food, dealing with there's a billion things that they're going to be, be done. And so I think from a stress eating perspective, you have one or two things deal with the stress. Or if you can't, because it's the job you're in, and you, you can't change jobs, then deal with the way you deal with stress. So instead of turning to food, this is easier said than done. Do something else. Find something else that maybe tickles that part of the brain rather than necessarily only turning to food. That's absolutely brilliant. And I definitely agree that you should change your perspective the way you see stress in case you can't handle it. Because, you know, if you can't change the environment around you, and I mean, we should be realistic and sometimes it is impossible. Like you said, it might be your job and you're not just gonna, you know, quit your job just because you're overeating. Like that's probably not the best solution. Then at least you should try to change your perspective and how you see things and also develop the tools that help you to manage stress. Like whether it's, you know, going for a walk, having a nice relaxing bath, like reading a book, maybe dancing for five minutes that's actually my way of dealing with stress but that's why i'm lucky that i live alone so no one sees that <laughs> but you know there are different ways of dealing with it and you sh and you can definitely definitely find something that works for you and the very last question that i have for you is also going back a little bit to our previous um, topic it's a little bit about diets so you know I've noticed throughout experimenting with myself and of different things that I'm more prone to, you know, gaining weight, you know, from different kinds of, I would say, carbohydrates, even if they're what we would call complex carbohydrates, right? Like, so grains particularly do not work well for me, no matter if it's like trendy quinoa or rice or anything else. But there are some people who like, tend to gain more weight, you know, from fat or from sugar or anything else. So I was wondering, is there also the maybe biological or genetical maybe explanation? What type of foods basically make you gain weight? Um, I think there probably are going to be genetic influences. Uh, there is a genetic influence to everything. It's just how much of a role it actually plays. Now, the issue is we don't know enough about it yet for one simple reason. It is very difficult to measure at scale, in a population level, accurately what we have eaten. Because at the moment, what I mean, yes, on an individual basis, you can sort of look at what, what you're eating. But if you're trying to do genetics over a population, then you need to have an accurate measure of what people eat. And at the moment, our recollection of what we eat is very poor. What did you have for breakfast two weeks ago? Uh, it, you know what I mean? Just, no idea. Exactly. <laughs> well, even if you said porridge, okay, how much? Did you put butter in it? How much butter did you put in it? You know, so I think that there are going to be answers about how different diets, uh, uh, how we react to different diets individually. We don't have the answers yet, but as we get better at measuring food intake, uh, not only how much, but what we eat, I think we'll begin to get some more nuanced answers about what sort of diets, what sort of approaches, what sort of interventions will work for different people. Sadly, we're not there yet. 
So do you think that in the future maybe you can do some kind of a saliva test or a blood test and basically you will have the results of this is basically the perfect you know meal combination for you like try to eat more of this try to eat lead less of this and it will be totally personalized well that that that's going to be the aim i don't think however given what i know about genetics um and how it interacts with the environment i don't think we'll ever get to the point where we can predict say that you are someone that responds to eating tangerines or something <laughs> quite that specific however i think we'll probably get to the stage where saying that you are go you are more likely to respond to a higher protein diet you are someone that actually reacts very well to high fiber i think to that level of more broader dietary approaches i think we'll get there the specifics you eat prawns or whatever okay i think that probably is too specific but i think the general dietary approach that you are more or less likely to respond to 10 years from now maybe i would say they would probably be able to get far far better than we are doing now well that's actually very interesting that you say it because you know out there there are currently i think a lot of dna tests that promise you i mean among other things that they promise you they also promise to basically give you a perfect meal plan right now and i was always wondering what are they basing this on because um i can't say that i read every single research but i mean when a significant paper comes out i always look through it and i've never seen anything of this spectrum and now you've just proven basically my guess is that at the moment the science is still not there to back it up so this dna test right now probably are not that effective as they say they are i agree with you <laughs> thank you we have an official statement that instead of doing a dna test to find out what diet works for you go on a field trip and basically at the moment you'll have to experiment yourself but like you said eat more fiber eat more protein eat uh, less ultra processed food but don't fear food and enjoy it as well <laughs> correct i agree with that too Well, another official statement. Well, thank you so much for today's conversation. You just explained so many things to me that now in my head it's way more structured. And um yeah, thank you so so much and I really really enjoyed reading your both of your books Why Calories Don't Count and Gen Eating. And one particular thing why I enjoyed reading your books is that, you know, I read a lot of health related books, but sometimes even for me it is very hard to understand what they are saying. And I'm the person who works in this field, and you just have a talent of taking the science and explaining it in such simple words that I think anyone can understand it and benefit from it and implement it. So, thank you not only for our conversation, but thank you in general for your work and thank you to the luck and maybe the universe that drew you from the puffer fish to leptin pathways. Thank you so much. <laughs> Arena, lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me on. 